0: All right, y'all. So, as you saw, I I gave your your test back. I am planning on, if you'd like me to explain more details about what the right things were, I can do that. I was thinking about doing it over a video or something. If you wanted to talk to me, you could. It's just that now that we have 50 minutes to get through everything, I I don't want to spend 10 minutes talking about that. Um, My Argument is there were a number of you who made very strong A's, so it meant everybody could have made very strong A's. Uh, and, and I'll make a video, maybe explaining what 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 works and what doesn't. Um, but didn't think it was too hard. Um, it's pretty straightforward, but it did entail you having to sort of do the readings or at least be able to look it up. So anyhow, <coughs> we're moving on our adequate anthropology from the meaning of sexual difference, which I, I want to develop a little bit at the beginning of class today, uh, and then turning to man and woman as the image of God. Specifically, how we could say the body, but more particularly sexual difference, plays a part in the image and likeness of God, in the Imago Dei. Last year, I think it was in Lesson 20, we spent uh, the whole class on that. Uh, what does the Imago Dei meant in the theological anthropology? So I'll recap a little bit of it today, but we want to be able to really focus more on sexual difference and what John Paul II's teaching is. Uh, this is what I wrote my thesis on when I was over at the JP2 so I guess it's my area of focus or specialty. I wrote about the Imago Dei in the thought of John Paul II. So just a very brief recap of the Imago Day in general. This passage goes back to Genesis 127, when God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Uh, th- this verse, and I guess the entire account of the creation of man in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It's a cornerstone of Judeo-Christian anthropology. And the fundamental reason for his dignity, or his and her dignity, is is the fact that he is created in the image and likeness of God. We can see that in the catechism. Man being created in the image and likeness of God means his being and his actions are a sign our icon of God, his creator. Uh, We are having this little discussion before class. What role does the body play in this, Uh, particularly because God is pure spirit? How can the body be a part of an image? Um, Some may then looked at it and say, how can an image exist without a body? Because then it's just pure spirit. Uh, And there is a long history of discussing the Imago Dei in the Fathers of the Church, uh, seeing it in its soul, the higher faculties, the dominion over creation, which is an embodied reality too. Uh, But we really want to focus on sort of this I'm going to say advancement of, or this development of doctrine, where we do see, in the thought of John Paul II, the body being the sacrament of the person, uh, being part of the image and likeness of God. Because I guess it's not just the soul, this image, and likeness of God, it's just what the body is, but it's the person. As we talked about, the person is revealed through the body. Um, Fathers also made distinctions between image and likeness. Uh, you know, the fathers of the church like to have a lot of fun with these words and make up all kinds of stuff. Not make it up, but develop <laughs> it in ways that were often very creative. Don't tell me that Origen is not super creative. He is very creative in his, his approach to things. Um, but we really want to look at this thought of the Imago Day in the thought of John Paul II, particularly in Theology of the Body, but even more particularly in Moulieris and Tantin. And, and I want to, though, get to a term which I've alluded to, and, and as far as I understand it, I think I'm going to be able to explain it well enough. that probably fits more in the sexual difference class, but we're going to make it fit into here. And that's the, the, the phrase, oh, unity of the two. The unity of the two. And John Paul II talks about this or uses this phrase a lot. And of course, in typical John Paul II fashion, doesn't give us a clear definition, and it can often lead to a lot of confusion. So what I want to do is, is look at, and if you want to have your pick your books out, it's in <clears throat> number nine, audience nine, the first paragraph, or oh, the first little section, number one. Following the narrative of Genesis. We observed that the definitive creation of man consists in the creation of the unity of two beings. Okay? Their unity denotes above all the identity of human nature. All right? And this is something that I think we skipped. The unity is primarily in nature, they both share a common humanity. Similar corporeality. Duality, on the other hand, shows that on the basis of this identity, constitutes the masculinity and femininity of created man. So you could say that the two the, the or the difference, this is aggravating, um, comes with sexual difference. They're the same, but they're different different ways of being a body. And he goes on to say, this ontological dimension of unity and duality has at the same time an axiological meaning. We're going to get into what that means, axiological and ethical meaning. But it's ontological. here, duality. It's ontological. What does that mean? It means it's not primarily here about their action, about when they give themselves to each other, that's all going to be part of it. <coughs> but it's it's ontological. It's not the same as what he's going to call, and we'll see the one flesh union. That's the conjugal union. So in, in their very humanity, they share human nature, but they're two different ways of being a human nature. And in, in that, in a certain sense, there is this inherent communion, in that unity and duality. Why do you think that this is going to become important to talk about the communion of persons, that they exist almost ontologically in a certain sense of communion of persons, but this is going to be important (coughs) when it comes to understanding man and woman in the image and likeness of God. Why is that? What What does this language sound like? Unity in nature, duality and sexual difference, and I guess their personhood. What does that sound like? Huh? What is this? Communio, but what other type of language does that sound like? Trinitarian language. The, 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 the three persons of the Trinity, what do they share? Unity in what? Nature, divine nature, and their difference is in the relation of the personhood. So this is sort of, it again, this is not just about the, the, the spiration of the spirit, the generation of the sun, but there's sameness and difference, sameness and difference. So, so this, for me, this understanding of the unity of the two becomes essential to understanding these different levels of the Imago Dei. So let's get into that. Keeping this as the basis, this duality and the unity of humanity, what, is, what, do, what do we mean by the image of God in the Trinity, Imago Dei Trinitatis? So returning to the inspired text of Genesis, we see that just before God creates man in his image, he pauses to reflect on what he is about to create and says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. It's the use of the plural in God's self-reference, which is important here, for although God doesn't explicitly reveal himself as a trinity of persons in the Old Testament, we see these words as a foreshadowing of the divine mystery. John Paul says in the Theology of the Body that before the creation of man, is it as if God goes within himself into the very mystery of the divine we, his being as a divine we, to find a pattern of communion for the creation of man in his image. This passage is significant because it introduces to us the communal dimension present in man by means of his being created in the image of God, who is a communion of persons united in that one divine nature. Okay, So you can sort of see the similarities here. But the crucial quote, at least, that we're going to look at from man and woman who created them is, is nine, audience nine. I probably could have had y'all read 8, 9, and 10, but number three, and what he's doing here, and we're going to do like we did last time, kind of go over it almost line by line to see what he's trying to say. And he's comparing the creation of both accounts, Genesis 1, and then leading into Genesis 2, where he fleshes that a little bit more. He begins, the account of the creation of man in Genesis 1, affirms from the beginning and directly that man was created the image of God in as much as he is male and female. So, yes, in the duality, in the community of persons, we'll see, but somehow that sexual difference plays an important role. He continues, the account of Genesis 2, by contrast, does not speak of the image of God, but reveals in the manner proper to it that the complete and definitive creation of man subject first to the experience of original solitude, expresses itself in giving life to the communio personarum that man and woman form. In this way, the Yahwist account agrees with the content of the first account. So it recognizes, hey, man and woman, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, created for communion with each other, communion of persons, it highlights that. If vice versa, we want to retrieve also from the account of the Yahweh's text that the concept of image of God, we can deduce that man became the image of God not only through his own humanity, but also through the community of persons which man and woman form from the very beginning. So image of God in his humanity, in his human nature, a composite of intellect and body and soul, the higher faculties as an individual, as one person, as a human person is the image of God, but also somehow in the community of persons from the very beginning. But this community is talking about is not the one flesh union explicitly. It's just the very fact that they are two persons created in and for each other two different ways of being a human. But here's the next part, which is the decisive part. The function of the image is that of mirroring the one who is the model of reproducing its own prototype. And here's the important quote. Man becomes an image of God not so much in the moment of solitude as in the moment of communion. He is, in fact, from the beginning, from the beginning, not only an image in which the solitude of one person who rules the world mirrors itself. So here, a man as an individual, one person having dominion, that, that images God in, in his intellect, his spiritual faculties, and his ability to choose, but also his dominion over creation, but also and essentially the image of an inscrutable divine communion of persons. So he's talking here ontologically. He's talking essentially, yes, we, we're going to talk about how communion is about the gift of self. And the gift of in the marital act. But there is this unity, this communion that exists from the beginning of man and woman. They're the same, but they're different. They're persons that exist in relation. So again, like whether or not I sit and talk to you, I'm in relationship with you. Because we're persons and we exist in a certain relation. That relationship may not be actualized. But there's still a communion. We all form the one body of Christ. Am I in, quote unquote, relationship with every member of that body? Not, not, I'm not talking to them. I can't go to mass with everybody. But we're still in communion because of the way that we're united in our humanity, that we are united in the, the bond of the spirit of the church. But notice, he says the image of God in communion entails being male and female. This idea has been discussed in the history of the church, but never fully accepted. One, because of the problem or the the discussion of how does the body enter into the image when God is pure spirit. But also the real issue is John Paul II is going to talk about and we'll we'll mention a little bit is the struggle with integrating sexuality in God. How can you say that they're male and female in God? You could say it now because God, Jesus has, is, is a man, is a male body, but how, how can we discuss that? And so it was like this idea of the communion of persons in the body of man and woman was there on the periphery. It was brought back up. Thomas didn't like it. They didn't much deal with it in the, in the, the Counter-Reformation until the 19th century with Matthias Joseph Sheben brings it up. His renewed sacramentality. And then John Paul II with his personalism, reprises it. But the place that we're going to see it, most importantly, is in Moulier's Mutantum number 7. This is his, his letter or his encyclical on women. What's it from 88, 89. So it's a little bit after Theology of the Body. So it's given his time. Some of his thoughts maybe developed a little bit. <clears throat> And so, what I want to do again is take number seven and almost go down line by line to see what he's trying to say. So you can look up your Muliris Niditatum number seven. We're also going to go to number eight, uh, where he sort of deals with the problem of how can we say that the, the sexed body can be part and parcel of the image. So he begins, by reflecting on the whole account found in Genesis 2:18 to 25, and by interpreting it in light of the truth about the image and likeness of God, we can understand even more fully what constitutes the personal character of the human being, thanks to which both man and woman are like God. So we're talking about persons who are like God, not just bodies, not just souls, persons. For every individual is made in the image of God insofar as he is a rational and free creature capable of knowing God and loving him. That's the traditional teaching. It's in the catechism. We're going to accept that. Moreover, we read that man cannot exist alone. He can exist only as a unity of the two. And therefore, in relation to another person. Okay, and so, again, what do we mean by relation? Are we meaning relation as in, hey, let's go have coffee. But, hey, people exist in relationship to each other. And here, the very beginning, man and woman existing in relation in that unity of the two, two different ways of being a body. The unity and their humanity, the difference in their sexual difference. It is a question here of mutual relationship, man to woman and woman to man. Being a person in the image and likeness of God thus also involves existing in a relationship, in relation to the other I. So as we're going to see, it's not just only man and woman in the image of God. Any eyes that exist in relation with another I, who becomes the thou, that is part of the image and likeness of God. this is a prelude to the definitive self-revelation of the triune God, a living unity, and the communion of the Father, Son, and Spirit. So this is where he sort of brings in that unity of the two. There's the unity in the common humanity, the unity in the common divinity. But from the beginning, there are two persons, different sexed persons, existing in relationship. As I said, I think you can see that this is Trinitarian language. Unity in divinity, and difference, and personhood, which is defined by relationship. Or we could use that, that term, which I'm sure you used in your Trinitarian class, unity in distinction. Distinct persons in the Trinity. They're completely separate. But it's their relationships that define each other, and so I'm going to make the argument here, and maybe a, a better scholar, John Paul II, would tell me I'm wrong. That you could say why, why? We're going to see later why it can't be two males. Well, these are two humans that exist in relationship. I mean, why not? If he would have created a man, they could have like hung out and gone fishing and stuff. That at least he would have overcome the 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 the, the, the the solitude he had he at least had a bro he could hang out with but as we'll see there there's no fruitfulness coming from that so what is the importance then of sexual difference why the sexual difference I think it goes back to the asymmetrical reciprocity you'll it's it, it highlights the difference I mean the the the, the, the the difference in the person of the Trinity is so inscrutable, is so far beyond our comprehension. And a certain, si- like, the Father is never going to be the Son, and the Son is never going to be the Father. And the, 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 the distinction is so significant, so vast, through this love and this relationship, of this perfection, that somehow sexual difference in the image highlights that distinction and difference. That, yes. While they can give themselves to each other, one person is never going to be the other, or in a certain sense, in the actual lived communion, never going to find perfect completion. They're not two parts of one whole; they're separate. And the same is like, oh, you don't put all the three persons of the Trinity together and you get a little, a little magical amulet. No, that unity is in their divinity. It's something in their nature. Not just in their personhood. So I, I think sexual difference in the body highlights the distinction, highlights the difference, highlights the fact that the, t- the, the two are not the same in the same sense that three are not the same. So the fact that man, created as man and woman, is the image of God means not only that each of them individually is like God as a rational and free being. It also means that man and woman created as a unity of the two and their common humanity are called to live in a communion of love. And this is the way to mirror in the world the communion of love that is in God through which the three persons love each other in the intimate mystery of the one divine life. So what is he doing here? He, he's advancing the ball a little bit. It's not just union and in, in, sort of that humanity and the difference and sexual difference. Love, which entails an act of the will, a choice now enters into it. It's a deepened level of communion and relationship. He continues, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, through the unity of the divinity, similar to unity of the humanity, exist as persons only through the inscrutable divine relationship. Only in this way can we understand the truth that God in himself is love. So here's the thing. So yes, there's one level of the of Dei that is rooted in the unity of the two, which let's just call ontological. Regardless of how you act, you exist as man and woman. You exist in a common unity of of humanity. You exist in relation with the other person. And so just by our very being from the beginning, there's an ontological image. But here, he's saying that it's not just that. It's that union that comes from love, which of course is going to be involving gift and communion, which is a choice. To give of oneself. So this is, and again, is this the one flesh union? Not exactly. It could be, but not exactly. When he wants to talk about the one flesh union, he's going to talk about the one flesh union. But that is humans, we, and and our love of each other, whoa, then we can have the image and likeness of God. The image and likeness of God, he continues, in man, created as man and woman, in the analogy that can be presumed between creator and creature, in the sense that analogical speech is possible, which he says it is, he's not a nominalist, thus also expresses the unity of the two in a common humanity. This unity of the two, which is a sign of interpersonal communion, shows that the creation of man is also marked by a certain likeness to the divine communio. This likeness is a quality of the personal being of both man and woman and is also a call and a task. So that's the thing. So here's this is ontological, personal. You were created... This goes back to 9.1. So he's referencing back to what we talked about earlier in the unity of the two. Yes, you exist as the unity of the two. This is ontological and personal and nothing you can do about it. But because of that, it is also a call and a task. There is an axiological dimension and an ethical dimension. Thus, the foundation of the whole human ethos is rooted in the image and likeness of God which the human being bears within himself from the beginning. Okay, this is what you bear within yourself. You were called to communion, your person's in relation, you share this common humanity, you image the Trinity as a community of persons who shares the common divinity. Now you've got to act on it. So both the Old and the New Testament will develop that ethos which reaches its apex in the commandment of love. You'll see how this is a rephrasing of. Theology of the Body one. Do y'all kind of see this? Looking at ontology, person, and saying from that, this is we're created the image likeness of God. This is how we ought to act. How it's actualized. It's a call. It's a task. Body, the unity of the two is a sign of the communion that the couple shares, that humanity shares, but also other, but reflects God. But that has to be actualized in the gift of self in love. So that's the real second part, which we're moving to, which John S. Paul II talks about. But as far as I see it, because now I'm, I'm, we're done with Muller's Dotton no- number seven. He ends by saying, yes, it, it's about, it leads towards the gift of self and love. But he mostly focuses on that personal ontological dimension only later does he mention this ethical dimension. So we're the communion person, where the communion and our person, our sexual difference, but there's also love, the choice, which is based on what? The gift of self, the spousal meaning of the body, that the body, that the body reveals the person, the person, male and female, down to the very core, are called to give of themselves. So we go back to Gaudium et Spes 24. Speaking of the image and likeness of God, they're talking about man and woman and the image or likeness of God, says this likeness reveals that man, who is the only creature on earth, which God will for itself, cannot fully find himself except through a sincere gift of himself. So the Second Vatican Council links... The gift of self with the Imago Dei. John Paul II, of course, will develop that language, the spousal meaning of the body. Why is this? Because the Father, Son, and Spirit give themselves in love to each other from all eternity. John Paul II, in Familiaris Consortio, Okay, go, yeah, your question. Go ahead. I'm
1: having a hard time trying to figure out, particularly when you talk about how does the sexual difference necessarily, like, like how does that play into that different than just me loving another, like, a fellow brother or sister, like, you know, why, how does that exactly make a difference? That,
0: that is, that is the key question. And, and I think, as I said, the big importance, first of all, is on the ontological level, to show that there's a separateness. As we're going to see here, that the gift of self, I'm going to give you this, this quote right here from John Paul II of Consortio, it doesn't have to be in the Marital Act, but it's in the Marital Act that the true meaning comes. So could
1: you say, like, the Marital Act is, in a sense, not like high as in your ranking them, but because because only in that you're giving everything.
0: Um, like well, no, no, you're, as a celibate, you're going to be giving everything. Yeah. Serving the poor, you're going to be giving everything because of, we're going to get to it. Because there's an inherent potential that it has. Isn't there the relationship with the uh, sacrifice of the Mass and us, you know, being in there, that that's where the ontological... Well, is? well, no, because this predates the Mass. This predates the sacrifice of Calvary. So we're looking from the beginning here. That could be the fulfillment of it in the spousal analogy in the Eucharist, but not yet. It
1: seems to me like it's a... I have this sort of... It's very hard to describe what I'm trying to say, but I have this image of almost like, a, uh, like an astrological phenomenon of a, of, a, of a force of gravity of two bodies coming together that are it's so strong. And, it's, and it's, they're battled together, and there's just this intense force coming together. And that typically, if, if you weren't, if, if there's, there's a tendency for the kind of communion that a rational being wants to have with another rational being, where there's a melding and a, and a unification that's so strong, so intense, so powerful, that it eliminates the difference and the differentiation and the individuation. And so it seems like, to, to sort of address what Hugh's getting at, and just sort of speculating here, it seems like the, the sexual difference is the thing that, just insists and never will allow the two or the multiple to come together in such a way that it's just a melting or a melting, and they lose their differentiation. So that, so that the, the sexual difference is that thing that it always is there to prevent you from thinking, all right, we're just completely one and one whole being now, we're not really separate.
0: I, that's you could. I think that that goes back to asymmetrical reciprocity. As much as you want to be one with the other person, you're not going to be. John Paul II will say after the fall, there's this insatiability of the union. That after the fall, like you're never going to be fully satisfied. Somehow it alludes to the fact that before maybe you would be before the fall. But I, I, I'm gonna. Well, I think it's a valid point. And yeah, that that the, the, the two pieces never make one. I, I think there's it's an inherent capacity, which will make sense if you give me about four minutes, five minutes. So listen us jump on the again. This is in familiar Consortium, so it's 81, but still within the, 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 the time frame that he's, he's given theology of the body. God is love, and in himself he lives a mystery of personal love and communion. Creating the human race in his own image and continually keeping in being, God inscribed in the humanity of man and woman the vocation— and thus the capacity and responsibility of love and communion. Love is therefore the fundamental and innate vocation of every human being. And so as this persons of the Trinity exist and live in a relationship of gift and love, we are called to do the same thing in being created in the image of God's likeness, in the image of the likeness of God. And so that gift of self, that personal gift of self, is the foundational principle of love, which seals the communion of persons. But it does, it's not necessarily genital. So look at, we could talk about uh, the God, God's design for us all to live as one brotherhood in love, the love of neighbor and enemies, the love between man and woman, celibate love, the love of friendship, love in the family, love in the church. It all entails personhood, persons created as male and female, but also difference. So it's not, it's sexual in the sense that we love as men and women, but it's not actually genital, that, 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 that expression. My old professor, Carlo Roquetta, who unfortunately doesn't have a lot of stuff translated into English, he, he sort of sums it up well here. The concept of man and woman created in the image and likeness of God carries within itself the awareness that our most profound being represents a we, open to communion, to welcoming, and to gift. Bodily, corporal, but not necessarily genital. Being created as living icons of God means existing as relational beings structured for communion and meeting, 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 if we are created in His image likeness, the fundamental structure of our being is not I alone, but I and you and the dimension of we living in communion with other persons. And yes, we're going to see this is all analogy and analogies aren't perfect. John Paul II will admit this. But let's get down to the real significance of masculinity and femininity or male and female. The the communion that John Paul II talks about is the unity of the two, but also the one flesh union. That's the conjugal union. What comes from that? And I think this is the di- this is the point why sexual difference becomes super important. Because here you have the conjugal union, one flesh. So here, while yes, let's say all of us here, we're existing in the community of persons in this class. We're all loving each other. We're we have a hive mind. We're trying to understand these deep truths. But a man and a woman can do the same thing. We could have some women in this class, and we'd all be in the communion. But when a man and a woman, in the, the explicit sense that this, this passage talks about, what are we talking about that they can actualize that the other forms of communion can't? Babies, fruitfulness, new life coming forth from the bodily exchange of the gift, the one flesh union. So again, what what happens? Man and woman, you were created in the image and likeness of God. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. It exists there. They exist in relationship to each other. They're in communion. But then what happens in verse 24? Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. So, fruitfulness, this 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 conjugal gift that leads to the one flesh union, it's not ontological, it's not purely relational or in general. It comes through a choice. It comes from sexual gift and receptivity. And so. It's here in the genital and conjugal gift um, where sexual difference and the conjugal gift enters in. So that, that document I, I had you all read, Person of Communion, sort of states it clearly. When a man and a woman unite their bodies and spirits, because again, it's not just a bodily union, it's a personal union, In an attitude of total openness and self-giving, they form a new image of God. So yes, the, the sexual communion of man and woman who give themselves and receive themselves but still remain separate persons are part and parcel of that. But what does that unique union have the capacity to do? Bring forth a new life, another little image of God. And so it, there's, not, of course, there's fruitfulness and all these other things, but there is a physical fruitfulness that the two bros can't get and two ladies can't get. A- ain't possible. Maybe there's a spiritual, we, we, we pray a rush together, we have this deep spiritual communion, and the, the fruits came forth from so many wonderful things. Absolutely. But it takes sexual difference. And the communion of the bodies and the persons to bring forth a new life. What does this sound like if you're going to connect it to the image and likeness of God? Inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Father gives himself to Son, generates the Son, the Son receives the gift of his life, the Son returns from all eternity to the gift upon being generated, or again, there's no time in the Trinity. And then from that exchange of gift of father and son and gift and receptivity, the Holy Spirit, the third person spirates as a sign of their union, of their love. So the procreative dimension of the spousal gift enters in. And it can be considered part of the Amago Dei. And we're going to see this in Mujer him. He speaks explicitly of the generative capacity of the body and the union. Now, he doesn't talk about it, this fruitfulness, as explicitly and as much as he talks about ontological and sort of that, the, the, the general gift of love. We're going to see what he says, but I want to give you a quote from Pope Francis. He develops this in Amoris Laetitia, he explicitly says it. The ability of human couples to beget life is the path along which the history of salvation progresses. Seen this way, the couple's fruitful relationship becomes an image for understanding and describing the mystery of God himself, hidden from all eternity, trinity of persons. From the Christian vision of the Trinity, God is com- contemplated as Father, Son, and Spirit of love. The triune God is the communion of love, and the family of his, is its living reflection. So again, I could probably should put this a little bit later. It's not just the the couple that's with the child, but them all living together. The family becomes the image. Family in the communion. So you could have a bunch of children. It's all part and parcel of the image. I should leave that as the bottom. So there, there is the fruit that leads to the family. But it all... Is based upon the sexual difference. No one flesh union, no fruitfulness, no—I guess we would call it the the fruition or the completion, the fullness of the image of the Trinity. So does that make sense? Yeah. I think this is where it's going to. It's like, hey, why does it matter? It matters because the full completion of it is in the fruitfulness and the union of the persons of love because there's no natural generative capacity in the body without difference, or at least physical generativity. So that generative capacity, the, the child is, is, symbolizes the spirit. And that love and that family and that community of persons, the couple and their inherent fruitfulness, based on the sexual difference, bringing forth a new life is the image of the Trinity. The perfection of it. And in a way that, that that other forms of communion simply can't do. You know, we could all be loving each other, but ain't no baby gonna come forth from it. You know, a new a new. Seminary may come forth, or a new class, or some new endeavor, but not like that. But all this is a struggle, because we're talking about using analogy. And this is a struggle in the history of the church, because, wait a second, you're talking about having kids, families, sexual difference, bodies, all part and part of the image of the Trinity? It doesn't make sense. And so John Paul II understands that the struggle in history of accepting the body and sexual difference and the sexual act. Because this is implying the sexual act is part and partial of the image of God, the conjugal giving of man and woman. How can this be? Uh, so it's the question of language and analogy. So he says, in number eight, Muliar Seditatum, the this characteristic of biblical language, its anthropomorphic way of speaking about God, points indirectly to the mystery of the eternal generating, which belongs to the inner life of God. Now, he's talking about generating. So here he's talking about, all right, yes, man and woman, but this idea of generativity and the, the, the husband and wife coming together and to bringing forth the child, it implies fruitfulness. Now, I, I'm going to be technical here. Is he talking just about the son? in the Trinity because the, the, the spirit's not generated. The spirit's pirated. So is he only talking about the generation of the son? He continues, and this is going to become important later when we talk about the spousal analogy. Nevertheless, it in itself, this generating has neither masculine nor feminine qualities. It is, by its nature, totally divine. It is spiritual in the most perfect way since God is spirit and possesses no proper typical property typical of the body, neither feminine nor masculine. The Trinity is not sexed. There's no body. We can't, in a certain sense, a generativity of the sun, and I would say spiration of the spirit is so far different. That there really isn't that you can't say it's very feminine, or at least in the in a certain sense of the terminology. He continues, thus even fatherhood in God is completely divine and free from the bodily masculine characteristics proper to human fatherhood. He's really uh, focusing here on it's not that we can't find fatherhood in God, but these bodily characteristics. You can't say that there are penises and vaginas and bodies in the Trinity. It doesn't exist. In this sense, the Old Testament spoke of God as a father and turned to him as a father. Jesus Christ, who also called God Abba Father, and who as the only begotten and consubstantial Son placed this truth at the very center of his gospel, thus establishing the norm of Christian prayer, referred to the fatherhood in this ultra-corporeal, superhuman, and completely divine sense. So analogical speech is possible. He spoke as the Son joined to the Father by the eternal mystery of divine generation, and he did so while being at the same time truly human, son of the Virgin Mary. So he's talking about that father-son generative uh, relationship here. Although it is not possible to attribute human qualities to the eternal generation of the word of God, and all this divine fatherhood does not possess masculine characteristics in a physical sense, we must nevertheless seek in God the absolute model of all generation among human beings. It's OK. Even though, like, hey, it's not masculine, there is still this generative capacity that we can find in all generative capacities, which by analogy and just by sort of archetype tends to be masculine, because the male body gives. He'll complete this here. This would seem to be the sense of the letter of the Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 14, 15. I bow my knees before the, the Father, from whom every family inhabitant on earth is named all generating among creatures finds its primary model in that generating which in god is completely divine that is spiritual all generating in the created world is to be likened to this absolute and uncreated model thus every element of human generation which is proper to man and every element which is proper to woman namely human fatherhood and motherhood bears within itself a likeness to or analogy with the divine generating and with that fatherhood, which in God is completely different, that is completely spiritual and divine in essence. Whereas in the human order, generation is proper to the unity of the two. Both are parents, the man and the woman alike. So again, he's talking about the union of the two, that communion, but then the communion exhibited in the one flesh union. That we can see fatherhood, generativity, motherhood rooted in God. His fatherhood, the generating of the son, and I think you could also say the spirating of the spirit. But the fact is, so it's it's much more, he says, it's that major dissimilitude. Did y'all study that? In an analogical speak about God, as much as there may be some similarity, there is always a major dissimilitude And he talks about it a little bit further on in section 8. Okay, it's similar, but there's all, when you're talking about this, God is so far different, but it doesn't mean that we become nominalists and say that, uh, that analogical speech is impossible. We just have to understand that it's never perfectly going to represent what exists in the Trinity. So, yes. And this is where I think he's trying to say there is a struggle and there are challenges of, and limits to this spousal analogy and fruitfulness of the man and woman in describing the Trinity. But it doesn't mean there's not an inherent seed of truth. It doesn't mean it's impossible. So I think here in, in number eight, he's sort of preemptively countering the argument that this is a bunch of malarkey. Bodies don't play part of the Trinity. Male and female don't play part of the Trinity. He's saying, by analogy, they do. God's more unlike it than he is. But you can't say that all generativity doesn't come from God. We can't find the roots of masculinity and femininity in him. But he's so far beyond it. Does that kind of make sense? Of course, John Paul II is not going to make it easy for anybody. But this is what he talks. Maybe it's in number nine he talks about, the major dissimilitude. I'll have to go look it up. But so, yeah, we need sexual difference for fruitfulness and generativity. And that generativity, images, generation of the Trinity, even though he talks about here the son, I think we could also certainly say because of the idea of the family, which Francis talks about, is part of it. It implies the inspiration of the spirit.
1: Right before that, he's saying, like, God has all generative power in the state of masculineism. Is he saying in human, it's only in the two that the full well, power is seen?
0: Or what well, I, I, think, I think we saw, like, I'm, I'm, I'm again, conjecturing here because I don't fully know his mind. As we talked about, there is a spiritual fruitfulness that comes, but this difference... This difference and union, the first two, don't have an inherent generativity. Let's say our logical level, man and woman and and difference, everybody exists together. We don't call each other parents. I mean, there's a spiritual fatherhood, a spiritual motherhood. But it doesn't have that same natural generativity that comes with sexual difference and the way that the bodies are made. Can't become your parent. Uh, I think that's what he's saying. I think he's talking about the uniqueness that comes in that sexual difference based in the unity of the two, but actualized in the one flesh union. I just want to wrap this up by by talking about something we used to study a lot in, in theology, is if we're going to talk about this idea of man and woman, or humans, as the image of God, the trinity of persons, it speaks to what it's called a Trinitarian anthropology, a trinitarian ontology. So, I mean, if in the core of our being, we're creating the image of God, what does a Trinitarian ontology look like? But challenge us to see the person created for communion as the image of God, not just ontologically constituted as a static being, but more dynamically as being is gift or being is love. Even apart from grace, like grace, this is part of our nature. The other word that we used to use is ontodontology. You want to guess what that means? Ontodontology? Onto, being, don, giftology. The study. The study of being as gift. We're created for love. We're created for relationship. It's ontodontology. So, oh, oh. Ulrich, it Ulrich who talks about that? He's the new guy, but he talks about spiritual childhood. Back in the, the 90s, there was a, a German named Klaus Himmerly that wrote a lot about this. Also, uh, a Belgian theologian, Jesuit Alain Mathews, who wrote about being his gift. I think it's, it's Ulrich, Ferdinand Ulrich, but there's another one that is big into all this idea of being his gift. Just something to think about. But here's the other part. Let's say, indeed, this is all correctly true. Image of God, man and woman, body, family, children. So when people see the married couple, when they see the fruitful family, what are they supposed to be seeing? God. It is symboline. It is taking the prototype of the Trinity of Persons and uniting it to the the... the The image. So what is the strategy of the diabolos, the breaking apart of the image? Destroy the family. Destroy sexual difference. Because there's no no generativity there's no sexual difference. Destroy the meaning of sexual difference. Destroy the meaning of man and woman put together. Destroy the meaning of marriage. Even as a natural reality, which it is a natural reality, we're going to see that. And thus, of the sacrament of the spousal analogy, what are you ultimately doing? You are destroying little images of God all throughout the world. And if there are not as many little images of God throughout the world in the community of persons, then guess what? There are fewer people who are going to see it and come to believe in it. So we could say that part of that diabolical attack on difference, I think particularly the female body, on the family on the couple and marriage is all there. It's all there. So I know this is very theoretical and it's it's important because, hey, we're creating the image and likeness of God and and there is a lot to be reflected on here. And because this is an advancement of theology, there's still a lot more that can be reflected on. You know, how does asymmetrical reciprocity play in this? What are the limits of the analogy? This is sort of... I mean, the history of 2,000 years of the church is sort of new stuff. But it is brought into the magisterium. There is some validity here. Willette has written a lot on this, particularly that the family is trinity. He has a book called, I think, Towards the Trinitarian Ontolo- Towards the Trinitarian Anthropology of the Family. Ouellette's uh, hard to understand. Probably not as bad as Balthazar, but it's difficult to understand. Um, as y'all are reading his little sacrament mystery book, or y'all will read it in marriage. Great stuff, but difficult. So, so what we're going to do, though, next week, because remember, we don't have Class Friday, we're going to spend that week looking first, not at all the symbolic meaning, but very practically, the, the complementary of the sexes, and how they work together, and how we live together. And then looking at the genius, the feminine genius, and what I'll call the crisis of masculinity. So it's going to be more sociological. Like the PPF says, we want to draw all biology, psychology, theology, and sociology to describe these realities. So, glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As the beginning is now, and ever shall be, or without end. Amen. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.